0: History of the Little Things, a podcast where we talk about a few things to be grateful for and the history and stories behind them. I'm your host, Elizabeth Miller. Thank you so much for joining me today. Let's get going. Growing up, I attended the science fair a number of times. I was usually curious about things I'd seen in books or movies, so that's kind of where the uh, questions for the science fair would come from. One science fair project was figuring out how many balloons it would take to lift a person up into the air. Think Curious George or the house in Up!, Another question that we looked at was from a scene from Pirates of the Caribbean, if you've seen it. Uh, There's a scene where Jack and Will take a small boat and walk it underwater. The boat has an air pocket allowing them to breathe as they walk the boat out to sea in order to board a different boat anchored outside of the harbor. To be quite frank, the mathematics that we did for all of these projects were well beyond my own understanding and my dad did a lot of the complicated math. Not something I could follow, and that probably wasn't an ideal practice either. I'm so sorry. But we did our own experiment for the Pirates of the Caribbean experiment in the local pool with a bucket. For that one, my dad was tasked with trying to drag a partially air-filled bucket to the bottom of the pool. My dad did this because I was tiny and could not get anywhere near the bottom of the pool with the bucket. It had too much buoyancy. It proved very difficult to complete overall. And it turns out that the buoyancy of the air inside the boat for Will and Jack would have been too much and would have simply pulled them back up out of the water. It's always sad to break the movie magic. And as far as lifting a person with helium balloons, let alone a house, let's just say that it would take several thousand, well beyond what we see carrying away the curious monkey in Curious George. One year, I turned toward the so-called softer sciences to see how negative words and negative reinforcement affect cucumbers, Twinkies, and something else that I can't remember what it was. I had read about a similar experiment with snowflakes and wanted to try my hand at it. My results didn't entirely match the book I'd read, but it's also possible that I did not control for all of the variables. Twinkies, as they say, are going to last through the apocalypse after all. Difficult to control for that variable other experiments that were always popular at the school science fair in elementary school included volcano recreations and other fascinating experiments. One of the regular sort of elementary school science experiments that I never got to see really in person but I heard about was that of using potatoes or lemons to make batteries. So since I never learned from my childhood science fairs how to make batteries and because I was always grateful for my portable battery charger whenever I was traveling around Europe or just on a particularly long tube ride home, after school in London because like I clung to my GPS on my phone for dear life and was always assured to have access to a power source because I didn't want to get lost. Thanks to all of this, I figured it was time to talk about why we can be grateful for batteries. Batteries have been around for a very long time, some would argue. A director of the Baghdad Museum in 1938 found what we call the Baghdad Battery. He found it in the basement of the museum, and it's thought to be dated back to somewhere around 250 BCE and is from Mesopotamia, although some archaeologists have said that it is dated to a later time period. The Baghdad Battery is a nondescript-looking jar. At the time, it was unearthed near Baghdad and simply put away in the basement of the museum. But then two years later, German archaeologist Wilhelm König noticed something interesting about the jar. The jar was made up of three elements, the ceramic pot, a copper tube, and an iron rod. Archaeologists are uncertain of the purpose of the jar. Some have proposed that it could have been used as a galvanic cell, which we'll come back to in a moment when we talk about Luigi Galvani and his galvanic cell, which was essentially a battery. This galvanic cell could have been used for electroplating or electrotherapy. Electroplating is the process of coating one metal with a thin layer of another metal. This helps protect the metal and keep it from corroding. This would be the only example we have from this time period. Other archaeologists suggest that it would simply have been a jar for holding sacred scrolls. According to Professor Elizabeth Stone of Stony Brook University, most archaeologists that she knows do not believe that the Baghdad Battery was in fact a battery. However, according to the popular television show Mythbusters, If it had been a battery, it would have functioned properly. The ancient Greeks knew that if you rubbed amber, it could attract small, lightweight particles. This is an example of the triboelectric effect. Think of static. If you've ever rubbed a balloon against your hair or your clothes and then stuck it to a wall, or if you've ever rubbed your feet against the carpet while wearing socks and then chased after one of your siblings to give them a small shock, this is a part of the triboelectric effect. In fact, the Greek word for amber is electron. And the root word for electricity. In 1650, Otto von Guericke invented an electrostatic generator, which was a sulfur ball that could be quickly rotated on a staff. Guericke would place his hand against the sulfur ball as it was spinning and build up static shock. His experiment led to the development of friction machines, which was key in the further study of electricity. Before the modern invention of the battery, however, we had experimentation in 1749 with Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin is actually the one who coined the term battery in reference to capacitors that he was using in his experimentation with electricity. The capacitors were gathered together, much like a battery as a military tactic was also in a formation that was close together. Prior to even Franklin, however, we have an important discovery that was made simultaneously by two different inventors, a German by the name of Ewald Georg von Kleist and a Dutchman called Pieter van Muschenbroek in about 1745. The invention is called the Leiden jar, also called the Leiden jar or Kleistian jar. The Leiden jar could store a high voltage charge between electrical conductors located on the outside and the inside of the jar. It was an important electrical component that was essential for the study of electrostatics and early study of electricity. It was an early capacitor, essentially. The invention of the modern-day battery however goes to italian alessandro volta alessandro volta was friends with luigi galvani who was a fellow scientist and whom we mentioned before in 1780 galvani and his wife lucia discovered that by touching an electric spark to the muscles of a dead frog's legs the legs would twitch galvani was a pioneer in bioelectromagnetics This discovery with the moving frog legs was one of the first steps into the field of bioelectricity, a field of study that looks at the electrical patterns and signals sent between muscles, nerves, and overall tissues in the body. Using some of Galvani's findings, Alessandro Volta began his own experiments with the hypothesis that electrical phenomena were caused by two different metals separated by a moist layer between them. Volta first published his experiment and hypothesis in 1791, and in 1800 he produced the first battery, which was called the Voltaic Pile. The Voltaic Pile was made up of three layers of pairs of zinc and copper disks separated by a wet cloth or piece of cardboard that had been soaked in brine. As batteries continued to improve, we had a number of different versions, like the trowel battery, which sought to solve the issue of electrolyte leaking by laying the pile on its side in a box as opposed to it leaking while it was standing straight up. This solution was created by a Scotsman by the name of William Cruikshank. Volta also sought his own solution in what was later called the crown of cups. While this helped with efficiency, it did not solve the main problem with Volta's batteries, and that was battery life. Volta's initial batteries only lasted one hour. Even today, lifespan of a battery, how long it can hold a charge, still marks the competitive edge of a product. The two main problems that affected battery life were polarization and local action. Polarization had to do with the hydrogen bubbles forming on the surface of the copper, and was taken care of by John Friedrich Daniel in 1836 with his invention of the Daniel cell. The Daniel cell was used for the first definition of a volt, which is a unit used to measure electromotive force. The problem with the local action, which were problems that arose from imperfections in the zinc, were solved by William Sturgeon in 1835. Many other improvements were made to the battery over the ensuing years, including the bird cell, the porous pot cell, the gravity cell, the Poggendorf cell, the Fuller cell, the Grove cell, and the Dunn cell. The gravity cell got rid of the porous barrier that had previously been used by the Daniel cell, the bird cell, and the porous pot cells to allow ions to pass through without mixing the liquids. The gravity cell, which was invented by a Frenchman named Calod in the 1860s allowed for a stronger charge and was used by the British and American telegraph systems until the 1950s. Some of the drawbacks of the gravity cell were that the battery had to be in constant use in order for the solution to be separated, and additionally, the cell could not be moved. With the Poggendorf cell, we were back to porous containers. The Poggendorf cell was invented by a German scientist named Johann Christian Poggendorf in 1842. It was popular because it could produce 1.9 volts at the time and did not produce any fumes, but it was also very fragile. The Grove cell gave off high voltage but had the problem of poisonous fumes, which is an important problem. It was a favor of the American telegraph system for a short time, but fell out of favor. All of these batteries were a one-time-use sort of thing, one and done. We didn't have rechargeable batteries until 1859 and the invention of the lead-acid battery through Gaston Planté. The battery could be recharged by passing a reverse current through the battery. Planté's batteries were used to power lights in train carriages when they were stopped at a station. Lead-acid batteries are still used today in some cars. The batteries are quite heavy, so when they are in use, weight can't be a factor. So don't go looking for a lead-acid battery in your phone. These rechargeable batteries are classified as second cell, whereas one-time-use batteries are called primary cells. Dry cell batteries, created by Carl Gassner in 1886, were a variation on les Clencher cells and were used to power telephones. However, in 1887, and some have even argued that at the same time, Wilhelm Helleson also developed his own dry cell. Additionally, in Japan in 1887, a dry cell was invented by Sakizo Yai and was later patented in 1892. His cell was exhibited at the World's Columbian Exhibition. In 1954, the first full metal jacket dry battery was released in Japan. It was called National Hyper. Later in 1899, a Swedish inventor by the name of Valdemar Jungner invented the first alkaline battery. In the 1890s, Thomas Edison also worked on developing an alkaline battery. Edison's vision was directed toward batteries for electric cars, thinking that this would be the future of the industry. His first attempt worked, but it leaked. It wasn't until seven years after his initial patent in 1901 that he had developed a more reliable battery, but by that time, cars had turned to gasoline. Edison's batteries found uses in other places, like for electric rail vehicles, backups for train signals, and lamps for mines. Later, a Canadian engineer by the name of Louis Ury was asked by his company to make improved batteries. He built upon the alkaline battery and released his battery in 1959. In 1954, we got the first solar battery from Gerald Pearson, Calvin Fuller, and Darrell Chapin. Eventually, we got to lithium batteries, which are used in all sorts of electronics, from wireless technology to electric cars. Experimentation with lithium batteries actually initially began in 1912, but a commercially available version did not arrive until 1970. In the 1980s, three different scientists made separate discoveries that were instrumental to further development of the lithium battery. An American scientist by the name of John B. Goodenough, Love that last name! A Moroccan research scientist named Rashid Yazami, and later in 1981, two Japanese chemists, Tokio Yamabe and Shizukuni Yata. From these developments, a Japanese research team managed by Akira Yoshino, developed the first lithium-ion battery prototype in 1985. Later, in 1991, Sony commercialized the battery. Later, a lithium polymer battery was released in 1997 by Sony and Asahi Kasai. In 2019, John B. Goodenough, M. Stanley Whittingham, and Akira Yoshino were awarded the Nobel Prize in Chemistry for their work on the lithium battery. Batteries have changed the way we live our lives. It's estimated that batteries bring in approximately 108.4 billion US dollars globally. Americans alone spend an estimated 3 billion on batteries each year. The lithium battery market alone is estimated to be worth $129 billion by 2027. Miniature batteries weren't invented until the 1950s. They were put on the market by a company called Ever Ready, which I love that. Be prepared, Ever Ready. I don't know if Be Prepared is their motto, but I feel like that would be really appropriate. But the company Ever Ready, which brings us full circle to gratitude for having access to ready power sources to keep us from getting lost allow us to keep moving in our vehicles connect with loved ones on our phone or simply ask google our most earnest questions like what is the name of that thing on the end of a shoelace the answer is aglet I'm so grateful for batteries. They've powered our cities, allowed us to enjoy the outdoors and have a peaceful, well-lit bathroom experience via flashlight. They've given us the freedom to search for information on the go, wherever we may be. Batteries allow us to move, to communicate, to see, to explore, and to feel at ease that we have access to help, information, friends, and family as needed. I am so grateful for batteries. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you have a beautiful, marvelous day. Take care.